Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to have Ben Binstock on the show, and we'll be discussing his new book, Vermeer's Family Secrets, Genius, Discovery, and the Unknown Apprentice. All books should teach you something, and most history books do teach you something. It's rare, however, that a book teaches you something on literally every page, and this is the case with Vermeer's Family Secrets. It really is the kind of book that you can open at random and find something of of great interest. Uh, Not only that, if you read it through, you'll see that it has a terrific and revisionist argument about Vermeer and Dutch painting of the 17th century. Ben says some Vermeers aren't Vermeers and some things that aren't Vermeers are Vermeers. And and most importantly, he says that several Vermeers were in fact painted by Vermeer's daughter Maria. All of this makes for a fascinating read, especially when it's wrapped in a beautiful package like this book is. It's obviously lavishly illustrated. A lot of art history books are, but this one is also intelligently illustrated, which is to say that the photographs or images are arrayed in such a way as to complement the argument and indeed make an argument themselves. So for anybody interested in art history, anybody interested in Vermeer, I very strongly recommend that you uh, go out and buy this book because it really is terrifically interesting. I enjoyed talking to Ben today, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Ben. Hi. How are you today? I'm great. That's good. Um, I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Ben Binstock, and we'll be having a discussion about his terrific new book, Vermeer's Family Secrets, Genius, Discovery, and the Unknown Apprentice. We'll get to the Unknown Apprentice part, too, because that's really cool. But first, let me ask you our traditional first question on new books in history. How's the weather there in Manhattan? It's a beautiful, sunny day. It is? I'm looking out at a park. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful sunny day uh, here as well uh, in Iowa. I like to think that um, there are more people uh, within about six square miles of where you are than there are in uh, the entire confines of the state of Iowa. That's kind of interesting. Only three million of us here. We're well, rare. you have some room room to operate. Yeah, that's right. There. We're a rare breed here in Iowa. If you meet an Iowan, you should stare. Where do you live in Manhattan exactly, Ben? It's actually the northern tip. Uh, uh, where the this Spouten Dauville actually, interestingly, it's the 400th anniversary, you know, of the Dutch discovery of New Amsterdam. They still have some of these Dutch names. That little water passage that goes from the East River over to the Hudson. Uh huh. Wow. You yeah, know, it's interesting. I, I lived in New York for a while, but I'm from Kansas, so I never really caught into it. It was uh, too much for me. Too many, too many people. I need land, lots of land, and the starry skies above. Don't fence me in. <laughs> so let me ask you this, Ben, about this um, uh, about this book and about your Lebenslauf. Why don't you just tell tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, I was born in Boston, and uh, I went to high school in Canada. We moved around a little bit. Uh, my mother 
remarried or didn't marry him at first, but her second uh, partner was actually a, a Dutchman. Who And that, I think, was when I first got exposed to Europe. We lived in Belgium for a year when I was 12, and I think that has partly to do with how I ended up gravitating to northern painting. And I eventually went to school at Berkeley uh, as an undergrad. It was a very interesting time there. Uh, Svetlana Alpers, who was a professor of Dutch paint, did, did Dutch Golden Age art, uh, and but other the representations crowd. I was in, exposed to a lot of interesting things that I think influenced my thinking and what I've become as an art historian. I got my PhD at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should mention about the representations uh, crowd. I, I should also tell our listeners that uh, Ben and I were at Berkeley at the same time, though we did not know one another. He was an undergraduate, and I was a graduate student. But I do remember the representations crowd. That was uh, something that we were all uh, sort of envious of because uh, I wasn't a member of the representations crowd. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't get invited to those parties with uh, Svetlana and uh, Tom McCurr and Stephen Greenblatt. They didn't. I don't, for some reason, my invitation to those parties got lost in the mail. <laughs> What can I say? Um, in any event, did, let me ask this about the representations crowd. Did it have an impact yes. on I, – I should, I should again, representations is a journal. You, you, you listeners can look it up. Did, did it have an impact on art history? Uh, I think that's still to be determined. I can be pretty concrete about it, which is that there were different agendas. You mentioned Tom LeCure is, I think, the one who's most characteristic of these kind of new, new historicism. You know, talking about masturbation or things that maybe people didn't talk about before. Stephen Greenblatt, in some ways, it, 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 well, we'd have to talk about what he's doing with Shakespeare. But if you talk about Svetlana Alpers, she represents a op- opposite pole to conventional iconographic art history, which is reading little symbols to get a moralizing message. She was kind of interested in more aesthetic, artistic questions about what the works are formally doing. And it, and it might be relevant to tell you, I actually published an article in Representations, which the person who was in charge of, I guess, T.J. Clark, also a famous art historian, that characterizes Oedipal, because I took them to task for what they were trying to do. And I said that, in a way, formalism really goes back to my hero, Alois Regal, is writing around 1900. That some ways, and this is not going to surprise you, I think, Marshall, that representation is doing old things and as if it was invented yesterday. Mm-hmm. That this concern with what the formal qualities of an artwork are, what it's doing, not in terms of a moralizing message, but as an artwork, is something that the earliest art historians were concerned with. So it's come back around obviously with some slight differences, but in a certain sense, that's what's at stake in Dutch painting and with Vermeer. Svetlana Alpers' book, Art of Describing, breaks a lance for the idea that these works really are about description and not about moralizing messages. And that should ring um, a bell about what they were saying in the 19th century, that Dutch painting was a self-portrait of the country, that it really is about naturalism and observing the world. And, of course, it's not black and white, but precisely because it's not black and white, there, there's, there's a, an important component of this is, is refinding that actually Dutch painting is about description, it is about observation, it is about the 
experience of the world around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I see. I, I should also say that uh, I had an article rejected by representations. Does that count for anything? I I, I probably still have <laughs> that. Yeah, right. I, you know, well, you know, that's okay. Never mind. Um, anyway, I see just what you're driving at there. Um, one of the themes of the book, which we'll come to in, in just a second, is in fact the distinction between this iconographic uh, way of interpreting things and then uh, how would you describe its opposite? Not its opposite, but the, but the uh, method of interpretation uh, to which you, you, if, if that makes sense, to, that you, that you uh, uh, use in the book. Well, that's, that's I was touching on. I would say formalism, but in doing that, I'm a little bit uh, being a stick in the mud because that's so old that that's what people were practicing around 1900 and actually precedes iconography. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it this way, that the history of art history, roughly, that it started, modern art history started, I would say, in the 19th century, with people concerned with genius works being particularly extraordinary and beautiful. As the de- discipline developed, they started elaborating their means, and you started looking at the themes of works, you started looking at symbolism, um, more specific studies of motifs, and now we've, we're moving, dividing our history into three periods. The post-iconography is when there was a whole uh, host, as Obama likes to say, of issues like you might say feminism or political, social art history, um, uh, psychoanalysis and concern with sex and gender, but ultimately all of that in my view, has to be grounded back in this fundamental issue of what is distinctive about particular artists or particular traditions. And I could summarize all of this. Again, my hero, Regal, came up with this word, Kunstwollen, which has been translated a number of ways. I argue that it's the will of art. And for me, that really is what it comes down to. What is art trying to do as art? And that could be what is Vermeer trying to do, what is genre painting really about, what is distinctive about Dutch painting, or if you want, what's distinctive about the Western tradition? What are the great things that it's accomplished? Why is it of interest to us? Which doesn't exclude any of those more particular interests about the psychoanalytic or political or mm-hmm. uh, other dimensions of the art. But that's that's what I would ground. I would say that I'm a. I call myself a biographical formalist, mm-hmm. uh, which the, the, the first foremost in 1900 weren't working with a lot of specifics, whereas we now know an enormous amount. And I think that to understand something like Vermeer, it's very important to look at his work, to look at his formal development, but also to relate that to the specifics of his biography, which could mean his family. It could also mean uh, his relation to other painters, obviously, uh, and that can get very deep about his relation to someone like Rembrandt. Uh, that's what I think the, the art is really ultimately about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question about uh, the notion of genius. I think that uh, it is not a popular one in the American mind, and I don't think that it is terribly consistent with uh, what we might call uh, the democratic mindset. I'm sure if Tocqueville were here, he'd say, yes, Americans don't really like the idea of genius. In fact, I'm reminded that it, I used to work at a magazine, and we published an article by a famous Shakespearean scholar who, who poo-pooed the idea of genius. Um, and uh, Shakespeare is sort of our archetype for a genius, I suppose. But uh, you have a lot to say in the book about uh, genius. How, how should we understand it? Who attacks it? And uh, why should we 
uh, maintain it as a notion? Well, I think if you wanted to be polemical and your most reductive, I would equate genius with intelligence. And the idea that we want to attack that or that's somehow against the democratic mindset. Yeah, that, that one's not popular uh, either. <laughs> <laughs> but I would also, on a more subtle level, I would say that some of the people who are uh, representing the democratic, the radical or the revolutionary, themselves were geniuses, including someone like Churchill, or more relevantly for our topic, I think that the Dutch painters were all about certain democratic values. That's what they said in the 19th century. I think it's absolutely true that the Dutch period uh, was one of the rise of the bourgeois and their values, which had to do with uh, celebrating the, the ordinary and the world around them, uh, moving away from hierarchies that are... Um, artificial and unjustified, so relevantly here, the hierarchy of history painting being the high and genre painting, which is about, means categories in French, it's what they named in the 18th century, but it basically means these paintings of everyday life, what could be more democratic? But ultimately, to bring it back around to genius, I would even say one of the things that I talk about in genius is a shift from the idea of hierarchy that the subject that you're representing is the high, or the materials that you're using, gold or something like that. Genius is a kind of democratic subversion of these hierarchies because it's about the spiritual or intellectual effort that you put into it. As, there's a quote from Proust that it's not about the scene depicted, but uh, how you depict it. Uh, it's also a Hegel idea that, that genre painting is not about the subject but about the way that you do it, that you make even a low subject interesting. That's a very democratic value so that I think genius is on the side of the overturning of artificial hierarchies and uh, privileged groups. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but Americans tend to reduce, uh, I think often, at least I, I sometimes do this myself, reduce genius to uh, technical facility. Um, I'm reminded of um, my friends who would say that, this is a very obscure reference, but the guitarist Yngwie Malmsteen, do you know who he is? I think he was no. Dutch, actually. Uh, but he was a great shredder, and my friends would say that he was a genius because he could play really fast. And that's what genius was. He was technically proficient. Um, but that's not quite right either, is it? Well, I don't know. There's Django Reinhardt. <laughs> he was technically proficient, but it has to do, I would associate genius more with vision. Mm -hmm. And you can't mistake G Django Reinhardt's uh, original uh, riffs aside from shredding, and it <laughs> fills me full of joy when I hear his music. That's, for me, what I associate genius with. It's something that you want to listen to. I enjoy Bach so much more, and it's still got so much depth, and you really take a long time to get sick of it, whereas something that's not so good, you know, it might be interesting in the beginning, but there's certain records that you can only listen to once. You listen to it twice, it's already too much. Yeah, this is... um. It is this quality, this thing I know not want, that the, uh, that's what Locke would call it, I think. Uh, it, it, you know, the analytic mind rebels against it, but I think that we have to say that it exists. Um, there, there, is, there is a something, uh, it, a quality that some things have that, that last. And, and again, as a, as a sort of cold, hard, unrepentant and um, unreconstructed empiricist, I, I constantly find myself poo-pooing that idea, but I, I think it does exist. Let's, let's, um, Talk about uh, Vermeer himself. Uh, one of the things that I'm always interested in, and I think that it's important to to recognize, is that almost everything that we 
hold to be very valuable today was rediscovered. And this is certainly true of Vermeer. And you tell the story, before we talk about Vermeer himself, he was largely forgotten until the mid-19th century. Is that right? And then he was discovered by somebody 200 years after he died. That's right. I, I prefer to use the word discovered rather than rediscovered. Okay. Partly because I'm arguing with other hard historians who want to believe that Vermeer was famous in his time and we'd simply forgotten him. Whereas I think it's more accurate to say he had a little bit of notoriety with his own town, but basically he was an obscure artist. He was not known outside his small town, a relatively small town. He ended up dying in bankrupt and poverty. He, he had a situation where he was able to do what he wanted to do because he had a patron who paid him a certain amount, but mostly he was buying time. He was buying the freedom to do what he wanted, to work very slowly and on the things that he wanted to do, but he really wasn't earning a lot of money, and there was ultimately hell to pay for the family. And But this is, goes to the heart of what art is about, and I don't want to belabor genius, but when you left me, I don't want to give you the last word on the je ne sais quoi. I would say genius is something that we love and want to see more of or hear more of uh, if we're talking about music or art or read more if we're talking about literature. But it's not something that we understand what it is from beforehand. That's what scholarship along with caring about something is, is that you learn to know more what genius is by spending more time with it, but also by doing things like defining an oeuvre. Vermeer painted a bunch of works, but he had no sense of an oeuvre catalog in his own time. Interestingly, because he had a patron, there was one guy who lived a couple blocks from him away who had all of his paintings on his wall, and that profoundly influenced Vermeer's own development because he was able to so easily see where he had come from, and he was very self-conscious about his own development and very uh, advanced in terms of moving forward, whereas other painters, let's say, who are producing things for the open market that they weren't going to see again, you just paint, you repeat yourself, you don't see it anymore. Vermeer really was arguably the first modern artist in the sense of um, really being about his own art and his own oeuvre, but you understand these oeuvre catalogs, knowing oeuvre the life work, knowing what all his paintings were, that only started in the 19th century. And again, with someone like the man who discovered him, Théophile Touré, he, he would produce the first monograph on Vermeer, and it was something like at least half or more than half of the works he attributed to Vermeer were not by him. Mm -hmm. And what I'm doing is continuing to refine this. So the sense that genius is something we come along, a guy who's brilliant and amazing and he has the right circumstances produces these works, and it's only later that we start going through them, deciding which ones are by him, putting them in order, understanding about his own development and why he was so extraordinary. It's something that's done belatedly, it's ongoing, and we continue to refine it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. Uh, uh, the, the cynic in me, and I believe there are a lot of cynics out there that will, um, <laughs> this will be, this will be uh, resonant to them, uh, would say that someone like Doré, uh, that's how you pronounce his name, isn't it? Doré? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, that um, often when an artist is discovered discovered or uncovered or whatever happens to them, that in fact there's a certain amount of promotion going on and that the person that is doing the promotion has a conflict of interest and that in fact these people that we call geniuses are often not geniuses. Uh, they are simply people who we have been told many times are geniuses and therefore come to believe it. Uh, we see this all the time uh, in the MTV age where complete, what I would say is complete mediocrity is sometimes called genius. How, how did, um, tell us a little about Thoré and what he was doing when he decided to, Tell us that 
uh, Vermeer was a genius. How did he find the first Vermeers, and 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 what did he say about them? Uh, well, the I first wanted to just agree with you, which I don't think um, is in contradiction with the possibility of genius. That it's always mixed up with people's base or motives, but a simple way to distinguish things would be to say sometimes the people doing the discovery are themselves geniuses. Sometimes they're hacks who have dubious motives, and but there's no question that that's what's going on with geniuses, Vermeer, Rembrandt, to this day, it's mixed up with people's uh, base or motives that have to do with uh, projection, economic or uh, financial, cultural investments. So, but that doesn't mean that there isn't genius at its core. In the case of Torre, I do think he was a brilliant guy who way is, could be seen as the first modern art historian, that he was actually a political revolutionary involved in the 1848 um, uprising there in uh, Paris, and he had to leave. So he was an exile, an interesting man, and while he was away in Holland, he needed something to do, so he started writing about museums, and this is what Freud would call overdetermined because he was in the right place at the right time. We, the, the technology of photographs was allowing people to start reproducing things, <clears throat> certain qualities of uh, the society at that time were allowing for the constructions of museums, large-scale exhibitions. It was going to happen that people started writing about art in a more specific way, but Torre was right there at the time, and the amazing story is that he was writing these books about paintings in Dutch museums, and Dutch paintings are arguably objectively great. He happened to be in Holland, but people were interested to know about Dutch painting. It was during the course of this, and very interestingly, that he was writing about Vermeer at first, that, ooh, is this a bizarre artist, and he got angry about the view of Delft, the impasto, the sick paint being too much, he said. Even Rembrandt didn't go so far. And the next year, he started reconsidering, saying, you know, that view of Delft is actually kind of interesting. And then a year after that, he said, oh, my God, this man is a genius. And then... Torre devoted his life to Vermeer. Now, this was his shtick. This was a, 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 the, what he was doing in life, but it was also a vocation, a calling. I think that's pretty rare. I wouldn't argue that he didn't have his own motives, and perhaps the fact that he, did tw he attributed twice as many works of Vermeer as he painted may have to do with his getting caught up in Vermeer fervor. And it's better to have... 200 Vermeers than 100, or in this, this yeah. case, it's more like 60 than 30. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. But, I, you know, again, I, I think it's a fascinating point and one that can't be uh, mentioned too often that uh, just like uh, history, uh, we go back into archives or we go back into museums and we reconstruct these things, and then we tell stories in the present about them. And so the story that we tell about Vermeer uh, is one that began really uh, with Torre in, in the, I guess, 1860s is when he started to do this work. Is that right? That's right. It was eight, the years I was talking about, 1859, 1860, and 1861 is really where the dam breaks. <laughs> uh -huh. so, so I want everybody to go up into their attics and look for a Vermeer or something, or some, somebody, some genius artist, and then you can be the next Thore. So let's talk about Vermeer's life himself. Uh, where was he born, and uh, to whom, and uh, what was his circumstance? In Do we know anything about his childhood or his upbringing? Yes, he, he lived in Delft, which was a relatively large town, actually, in Holland, but it's become since something of a small town because uh, 
it didn't have any of uh, it didn't have industry or things that would have made it uh, continue to grow. And the interesting thing is that in Vermeer's lifetime, that already started to turn around. It was a little like Philadelphia or something, a town that was increasingly backward. I think Philadelphians wouldn't want to hear that. But with I'm a lot of get emails about that. My uh, I have relatives that live in Philly. Look out. <laughs> but you know what I mean, which is I that do. at one point Philadelphia was going to be the capital, perhaps. And in the case of Delft, it was a a uh, place with a great craft tradition. So we have these Delft tiles everybody knows about. And they did have great painters. Um, the interesting thing was that a lot of painters started leaving for Amsterdam during Vermeer's youth and middle age, but he stayed. He loved Delft. He grew up on the main square, which is still there today and is still a market square on Wednesdays. Everybody sets up their, you know, booths and sells uh, clothing and candies and fish. And he lived in a, father was a kind of jack of all trades. He was a, he was involved in textile industry, but also was a tavern keeper. And he was also something of a gallerist. He sold paintings from the tavern. So Vermeer, we have to imagine, as a young boy in this lively environment of the tavern with paintings on the walls and painters presumably drinking there and regaling each other with their stories. And there's also some evidence. There's a, a great painter of his time, Terbor, Gerard Terbor, who painted the painting Fatherly Admonition, which some of the listeners might know. Uh, great genre painter. And Trevor to Vermeer's marriage, it seems likely that they were already friends before Vermeer even became a painter. So he probably grew up and knew great painters as a boy. He did his apprenticeship there probably with a painter called Leonard, Leonard Brommer, who was successful in Delft but has not – not recognized as a genius now and does kind of mincing little pictures, little figures. But he was also exposed to some of the greats. One of the real great painters in Delft, the greatest, was Carl Fabricius. He was Rembrandt's best student. He'd studied with Rembrandt in Amsterdam and ended up moving to Delft by marrying one of those rich widows that I talked about that were in Delft because all the money was getting concentrated in the hands of widows and not ongoing industry. And this Carl Fabricius was a revolutionary who redefined genre painting partly by turning to the camera obscura, which is a forerunner of the modern photographic camera, a little box with a little hole and probably a mirror to turn around this picture that would get cast inside the box. But you could produce a, a much more um, faithful representation of observed reality, how we actually see things, but also anticipating, let's say, some of the developments of the Impressionists or Cezanne, where you're using paint in more patches of color and moving away from linear design, which is what we associate with Italian art. It's, a, it's really a move from antiquity to the modernity there. And that this was a second wave after Rembrandt pioneering a kind of humanistic naturalism that was based on people he knew and models from his family and using his own uh, environment as a way of creating history paintings. His great pupil Fabricius took this a, a level further of optical naturalism, and Vermeer would have been exposed to that as a youth. Uh, Fabricius died tragically right at the outset of Vermeer's career. 1654, he was killed in an explosion of a gunpowder magazine that was storing all this gunpowder in Delft and destroyed a fifth of the city. So it was a kind of amazing event mm -hmm. of Rembrandt's youth. 
of the Vermeer's youth, and they, he, they later referred to Vermeer as a kind of phoenix that he rose from the ashes of Fabricius. I would say he combined Fabricius and Rembrandt. He combined a kind of humanism and people from his environment with this optical naturalism, you could say interiority and exteriority. Uh, the, these are the three greatest painters, in my view. One of the problems is that Fabricius's paintings are not attributed to him. I have to give him back five-sixths of his paintings, including major masterpieces that profoundly influenced Vermeer. These paintings are not recognized as Fabricius. They're in the depots of major museums. So there's a lot of uh, work still to be done on Dutch painting. The, the, the third greatest painter is still not recognized, who, who has also a crucial role in mediating between the other two greatest painters, Rembrandt and Vermeer. Mm-hmm. Are you? I was going um, to. I was thinking of one of these SAT-like uh, analogy tests. So Thore is to Vermeer as you are to Fabricius. Uh, well, Thore also. That's very uh, nice idea. I'm charmed by it. But Thore also discovered Fabricius. He was oh, really? an incredible okay. figure. Yeah, I mean, discovered, kind of rediscovered. Franz Hals was more famous in his time, but. Uh, uh, he made Paul's popular the way he is today. Yeah. Uh, Torre is underrated, amazingly, even in our field. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I'd never, I'd obviously heard of Franz Halls, um, but I'd never heard of uh, Fabricius, uh, and I was glad to, to, uh, to, to learn about him in, in your book. Um, one of the, the, the sort of I guess maybe even the central thesis of your book, although it has many theses, is that Vermeer's home environment, that his close confines had a very significant impact on him. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. That in fact, all of his, uh, that his paintings took place in a really domestic setting with domestic subjects. Yes. As I was saying, Rembrandt was a kind of pioneer of using people around him. As a young man, he already used his family. But people know about his wife, Saskia, and his late, once Saskia died, he ended up first kicking up with one uh, housekeeper who was apparently not as attractive, an older woman who was not well, and then he threw her over for a younger housekeeper, Hendrika Stoffels. But everybody has seen pictures of Vermeer, of uh, Rembrandt's mistress and his son, and there's further complications about who the people in the Jewish bride and so on. But with Vermeer, it's that principle, but it got narrowed down because Vermeer was a genre painter. He wasn't doing history paintings. And he wasn't doing really portraits of people. He only did these scenes of everyday life, but not uh, just everyday life of picturesque people playing cards or taverns. It's really scenes of domestic life, and I arguing more specifically, only scenes of people in his family in the rooms of his house. Let's say scenes of his own domestic life. And more specifically, we said that he grew up in the tavern. His father died rather young when Vermeer was still an apprentice, I think um, uh, a year before Fabricius died uh, back in 1653. So as a young man, the family was in financial straits. Vermeer fell in love with a Catholic girl. Catholics were uh, a quasi-persecuted minority. I mean, they were not allowed in the Protestant Republic to openly practice their faith, but a lot of people know the Protestant Dutch Republic was tolerant, partly in their own economic interests, that if people paid money, they were left to practice their religion in hiding, also that way with Jews and Amsterdam. The Catholics in Delft 
have hidden Catholic churches. Um, as you can imagine, Holland was originally Catholic, and it only went over to Protestant during the course of the 16th century. So these were often older families that had money, and that's the way it was with Vermeer married the daughter of a wealthy Catholic woman who was from a complicated family where the father had kind of beaten the mother and insulted her, and it was somewhat of a sociopath, and his son turned out to be that way, too. So it's a very lively and interesting family, wealthy, uh, dysfunctional, um, these hidden Catholics. That's what Vermeer signed on for, either because he was in love with the woman or also because the money came in handy. Maybe he was attracted to this dysfunctionality of the Catholicism. We can't really know, but what we do know is he married into all of this. He moved in with them, and these are the people, the mother-in-law, the wife, eventually his children with her. These are the people in his painting. So it's not just a question of the physical models who can be recognized, but also his milieu, what, this, uh, what, what his life was about with these people. Mm-hmm. I see. So why, let me why? ask just some simple questions. One thing that I've always yes. found very interesting is why always women? Why always women? Well, uh, the father, father-in-law was not part of the household. Uh, the psychotic brother-in-law <laughs> was eventually put in a um, house of correction. So uh, I show there's a couple of cases where he can be uh, identified. There's a couple of paintings in Vermeer of men and women together, sometimes himself, or, uh, uh, but mostly they're women partly because there was mostly women predominantly in his household. Mm-hmm. Uh, the older children were girls. Um, and partly because Lawrence Gowing is one of the, possibly the, the greatest Vermeer scholar in terms of his sensitivity to what Vermeer's vision was about, tried to summarize it as saying that the essence of Vermeer's is the attention of man paid to women. Mm-hmm. That uh, it's about, it's a voyeuristic art, it's about a little bit the other. It's about looking at women as somehow different. A man looking at woman is the uh, the most reductive formula for what Vermeer's painting is. But, uh, and if you think of this most famous painting, a lot of paintings of his wife, uh, their complex relation, uh, but also famous paintings of what I claim are the, da- the daughters, the eldest daughter, go with a pearl earring. Uh, this is a great theme of Western art, man's attention to women. Mm-hmm. And uh, Beautiful women, but also their interiority, uh, how they're different from us men. Um, all of these themes of Freud, what does women want, uh, what is love, uh, all of these threads of Western art uh, are tied in the very narrow knot of Vermeer's art about his relation to the predominantly women around him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see what you mean. So... Let me ask you this: how, how did he paint these paintings? What is the mechanical process? What was the? How long did it take? What instruments did he use? Uh, how, how did he get all those pigments? I've always wondered about pigments. I use a lot of beets, and so I know how he got red. But uh, the, um, but yeah, how the, how do you do that stuff? Well, uh, you you have to grind it yourself and get the original. Uh, uh, materials in the case of blue, you might know, is a particularly a costly one because it's based on this lapis lazuli that is a kind of 
rare stone, and it plays a role in the technical analysis of Vermeer's paintings, interestingly, because when they invented this Prussian blue in 1704, nobody uses the more expensive kind of blue. It's an easy way to date paintings, and it plays a little bit of a role in some of the discussion of some of the paintings in the book. And interestingly, uh, we'll get around to this with the unknown apprentice. It's very expensive to use this lapis-based blue, but Vermeer, who did not have a lot of money, he eventually apparently garnered for himself the second story front room, the upstairs front room. There was also an attic uh, that's suggesting uh, there's a, a film about Vermeer based on a Tracy Chevalier uh, novel, uh, which is strangely a kind of biographical novel, Monquet. It's about Vermeer's life, but it's also fiction. But she suggests some things that seem perfectly reasonable are shown in the film, that probably there was a, an attic where he kept, uh, he was doing some grinding. He probably kept this upstairs front room studio just for painting with his easel. He would have a canvas. He worked very slowly and producing about two paintings a year, not spending the whole half a year painting, but probably a lot of time thinking about what he wanted to paint, uh, working very, very slowly and maybe leaving it there for a long time. Uh, but he did seem to paint from models, and he did seem to paint in rooms in his house. Now, and using perhaps, uh, or certainly, a camera obscura to not in the way that the, what we call the camera literalists have suggested that he, a little bit like Warhol did with the camera that he projected it onto a silk screen and traced it. Some people have argued that the, even the canvas sizes correspond, but it's a kind of circular logic to the size of a of camera projection that doesn't make any sense. And Vermeer himself shows you with a port, shows himself with a portable camera in the music lesson. So you, we know that he used a portable camera, which couldn't have been used to trace images. He was looking at a camera and the world around him, but he was also practicing what I call a poetic naturalism. He was observing, but he was also adapting things. So he would have worked primarily in the upstairs room, but he also shows other rooms in his houses. So he would have, in his house, he would have moved the easel around. He would have taken his camera. He would have observed different qualities of the room, different qualities of the model, different qualities of the objects. These are real objects in his house. Paintings that we know from his inventory were in the house and represented in paintings. And there's also this development, which is you can see that he starts out with simpler, uh, he actually starts out as a history painter with imagined narratives, but he gradually grounds himself more and more in the observation of his environment, slowly developing uh, what we call the Delft interior, that representing an interior is not something easy to do. You have to use perspective in complicated ways, and you can see how Vermeer slowly develops, not only does he slowly develop, to the means to develop the interior that we know with the beautiful light wall, with the light raking across this white wall that's so familiar from Vermeer, but he actually invents something that's never before been done in painting. So we have the you know, 15th century, we might call the Bruges interior of Jan van Eyck, where it's like a dollhouse where the fourth wall has been removed, but you're looking at it from outside. The Delft interior that's invented in Vermeer's time, and I think has been miscredited in some of Vermeer's contemporaries, the, the lion's share of the credit belongs to him. But he's also building on innovations of Fabricius, and he used the camera obscura. But the Delft interior 
you show an interior where you're actually in it. It's mm-hmm. not like a dollhouse. It's not a remove fourth wall. You feel that you're standing there in the room. That has to do with the use of perspective, the, the suggesting of the, the all you know, six walls, the floor, ceiling, the two side walls. He does it in subtle ways. Sometimes it's just the light from the window. But he really perfected this, and it's a technical matter, but it, it's inextricable from the psychological content. I would say for every interior, there's an interiority of a figure. Mm-hmm. These women alone in a room, it's a kind of modern space. He invents modern space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So once he was done with these paintings, you say he painted about two a year. What, what happened to them? He had a patron, right? That's right. A patron who we assume had the right of first refusal. So uh, the patron probably gave him a little bit of money in order to be able to pick which paintings he wanted. And we can see that there's certain paintings that he apparently didn't want. And it's, I argue that it has a complex role in Vermeer's own development because this is, Vermeer has a kind of doubling strategy, tends to repeat himself. He was really, in a certain sense, painting the same painting over and over again, an interior an interior with gradual uh, changes and development and improving each time, self-consciously cumulative development. But at the same time, there's, you can recognize a certain A, A, B, B, C, C pattern where he seemed to have been banking on the idea that the patron wouldn't always take one of the paintings so that he could maybe trade it for something else or because he wanted to keep his paintings and hold on to them. But uh, most, most of the paintings went to the patron, mm-hmm. and uh, the patron seems to have given him free, free reign. So we see something like the view of Delft is a monumental, very famous painting. It's a view of the city, his town Delft, painted from probably a small second story of a small house outside just outside the city. And uh, this painting probably would have taken him more than a year to paint, an incredible monumental painting with incredible detail, and uh, he thought about it a lot, that when I claim that Vermeer in a certain sense reinvented or invented what we think of the masterpiece, that there was a masterpiece in the traditional guild medieval sense of your work as a master, that you're worthy of belonging to the guild. But we think of the masterpiece as an artist's greatest work. And I don't think before Vermeer do you have a monumental work crowning the oeuvre, the life work, at the center of the work before Vermeer. And that's what the view of Delft is. It was a bid for Vermeer at its kind of moment of the maturity to create something so great, later recognized by Marcel Proust as the most beautiful painting in the world. And that had to do with his discovery. Torre discovered Vermeer because of the view of Delft. So he's making a kind of historical bid. And uh, I think that had everything to do with his circumstances, that he had a relative high degree of freedom to work very slowly, to work very self-consciously and cumulatively, and to forge a lot of the qualities that we associate with modern artists, that the artist is about his own work. It's also, Marshall, about genius. Mm-hmm. But genius itself has a history. Mm-hmm. Let's not think of it as just an abstract concept out there. We get our idea of genius partly from how it was constructed, self-constructed by individuals like Rembrandt and Vermeer, who were working in a bourgeois environment, who garnered for themselves more freedom and autonomy as artists 
So it's more about their own vision and what they wanted to do and about pushing the envelope of realizing the capacity of their talent and mm-hmm. originality. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the iconographic and the formalist themes again. There are some elements in Vermeer's paintings that are seem well they seem to be allegorical and, and they 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 uh they can be read uh, as as symbols or icons and then there are other especially the genre paintings I, I i do have difficulty finding anything very allegorical or iconic in those um was he trying to meet some sort of balance between those things or did he think of them as separate that is their allegorical paintings and non-allegorical paintings their genre paintings and their historical paintings how, how would he have understood uh, these considerations I would see it as a move from uh, I wouldn't say iconic but I would say Iconographic as an icon, of course, is uh, we think of as something like the the, the, the true true their icon is pictures of God. Mm-hmm. Iconographic and the symbolism. I think that Vernier is moving from symbolism to naturalism, and that the whole of Dutch painting does that throughout from the Golden Age. That he recapitulates uh, the general movement of Dutch painting. You start out with conventional motifs. Uh, symbolic elements, stories that are very well known. And during the course of the century and this tradition, painters develop more and more technical skills and intellectual freedom to depict the world around them. Genre painting has a history. And the earliest genre is more symbolic anecdotal narratives. And Vermeer comes at the end of his tradition. It's the most sophisticated, the most self-conscious, and the most accomplished, the most, what is compelling about Vermeer's paintings is that they show us, they give us an experience of the world that's like our own world. Nobody thinks of Vermeer as great because, oh, look at the symbolic message of his paintings. Now, that's evident in his own move, starting out as a history painter, to genre painting, which is not about symbolism or a message is about the world around us. I would say even that history paintings don't necessarily have a lot of symbolism if you look at Vermeer's early history paintings, but these stories are themselves symbolic, whereas you could say, coming back to our themes about genius, about the it's the, not the scene itself but how you depict it, that there's no symbolic message, but what comes in its place is the beauty of the painting, the skill of the painter, the self-conscious uh, subtlety of his composition. It's filled with meaning, but the meaning is no longer a simple religious message or a kind of symbolic, didactic moral. The message is about Vermeer's own uh, intelligence and originality and uh, experience as a cumulative development. Now, the, you mentioned there's a couple allegorical paintings. There's an early copy of a religious painting that he, he does. There's um, a late painting called The Allegory of Faith in the Metropolitan Museum of New York. And that late painting is generally recognized by scholars as Vermeer's worst painting or his one mistake because he paints 
real things and and uh, the, our world and people around us who we know. When he tra- starts trying to do a religious message or symbolism, it looks terrible. I argue that this was his mother-in-law, who was this zealous Catholic, forcing him to make a painting for her and to serve her own agenda in a style and a, a, a content that was inimical to Vermeer, and that he, she was kind of forcing him into farce or self-parody. He took up the gauntlet by making her slightly farcical figure. She's, I actually argue, wanted to serve as the, the, the model for the allegorical personification. But it really is an ugly painting because the symbolism is kind of ridiculous and makes Catholicism look unconvincing. This is overdetermined again because Protestant culture is the culture of genre painting. They were moving away from what they consider to be artificial symbols, that God is symbolized uh, or represented in some symbolic way. In a way, genre painting shows the world, which is where God is everywhere, in landscape, in our own world around us. Uh, it's it's uh, anticipating the Enlightenment, and uh, that's a simple argument. That's why Torre loved Dutch painting so much. Is he didn't like aristocratic or ecclesiastical or political um, serving the emperor. Dutch painting is an art for man, he called it, about the common man, his world around him, and the truth, what we see. Mm-hmm. No, I see. I was reminded of something, and this may seem ridiculous, but it tells you actually uh, the um, aspect of, I guess, aesthetics or art that I know most about. Uh, do, are you familiar with the story of uh, a song, a Beatles song called Only a Northern Song? Anyway, this was written by George Harrison. Yeah, this was written by George Harrison after... Uh, That's been, the published company. Is right, after they'd been after. screwed by publishing company and i'm thinking that uh he uh that he was sort of that's what vermeer did in, in producing this allegorical painting on the at the behest of his mother no that's exactly right the early beatles were kind of genre painters of music uh i think that's how they partly changed rock and roll yeah, no, by bringing their own experience into it yeah no i think you're yeah. right about that it's it's a, it's a very good it's a very good point i just thought that this is sort of an interesting parallel when you're kind of forced to do something you don't want to do you're you're likely to apply the same intelligence that you use to produce your own art and slamming the person that asks you to produce art for them but in any event let me um ask you about what is probably the most controversial and interesting i don't know interesting not interesting uh part of the book, and that is about Maria. Uh, you attribute some of Vermeer's paintings to uh, his daughter. Uh, on what basis do you do that? Well, the, first of all, I'm the first person to really uh, uh, give a rigorous account of Vermeer's chronological development. You see um, paintings are implicitly put in order in other monographs, but they're always one painting per page, and there's very little visual comparison, and there's no explanation of why they put paintings in certain order, and all of the authors before me give rough dates, often from spanning a couple of years. Already, the, the, there's starting to be some response. So the Metropolitan recently, or still on, I guess, a, an exhibition based on the Milkmaid, and they starting to show the, the oeuvre, uh, but I was the first one to show it all together, and I'm still the only one to give a date, year-by-year, painting-by-painting chronology and explain the relation between these paintings. It's amazing that there's, there's only 30-something paintings, 
uh, and almost every scholar in the field has written a monograph. There's just so many monographs on Vermeer, but none of these explain his gradual painting by painting development. When you do that, you see that there's a number of paintings that really don't fit. They can't be logically put into any kind of development. And there's problems there that have been recognized by, in most cases, earlier scholars. With most of these paintings, in isolation, scholars have recognized certain problems. There's, there's cases where the people have said these are forgeries or this couldn't be by Vermeer. People have said this could be a follower of Vermeer. Uh, one couple of scholars even said maybe one of his children, but they were threads that nobody followed. Nobody was ever let the buck stop of saying, okay, well, what are these works that don't fit, what I call the misfit paintings? What's going on with these? What's the relation between them? What I say is, if you look carefully at them, it's what Vermeer's work in order. You see these work, group of works that don't fit, and actually, if you look at those works, you see they have commonalities. The other important part of the puzzle is I'm identifying family members in paintings. So if you do that, you can see these models, the specific family members, how they age over time, and how Vermeer is developing in relation to them. You see that the works that don't fit are also family members. So there must have been a follower of Vermeer, someone working, responding to his works, showing the same rooms, showing the same objects, the same models. A follower. We know that Vermeer did not have an official student because he would have had to register any official apprentice, but you didn't register your own children. So really the only logical possibility of who this follower that was producing works based on Vermeer is very much like his but not working with the same level of technical sophistication or the same vision or the same accomplishment of this uh, mature painter could only be one of the children. That could really only be the eldest daughter, Maria, was the only one who was old enough to be doing this. And I say you recognize her because you can see she does self-portraits, and it's the same girl that Vermeer uses as a model for some of his paintings, most significantly the girl with the pearl earring, I say, is a, is a portrait of Maria at 16. And if you take the girl with the red hat, which is uh, in Washington, D.C. National Gallery, and I say it's a self-portrait. That was recognized as a kind of self-portrait implicitly by scholars. They, they've recognized very recently. Uh, they've compared it to self-portraits in a number of ways, but nobody took that final step of saying, well, if it looks like a self-portrait and acts like a self-portrait, it is a self-portrait, self-portrait study uh, by Vermeer's eldest daughter, that she was his unknown apprentice. Do we know, uh, do, do we have any paintings that are firmly attributed to her? That is everybody. I'm sorry, formally attributed? You yeah, mean, well, formally, uh, I mean, the, the, pretty much the consensus is that she painted them, that there's some painting no, not we, attributed we to have, Vermeer that is attributed no, to her. Yeah. No, I'm the first one to explicitly suggest this. I say there's anticipation. In other words, some scholars said maybe one of Vermeer's children acted as a student, but they didn't, you know, follow through on that, which would be to say, well, who could that have been? And which paintings are we talking about? If you follow through, then you come to my conclusion. But I am the first one not only to uh, group these paintings together and try to explain who did them, but to give, uh, to say that Maria Vermeer painted these works. We don't have any official documents referring to her as a painter. The reason for that would have been that, first of all, she stopped painting when her father died. She got married and had children like most of the other women painters that we know about, they, they had to um, answer a 
presumably higher calling for in that at that time of being a mother and wife, whereas we would now say it's kind of a shame and that uh, Maria Vermeer showed great promise and maybe was even a great painter even in her apprenticeship works. The other reason is, I argue, is that it was actually a family secret that uh-huh. this bankruptcy that I talked about, the family knew that there was going to be trouble. They were running up huge debts, no, most notably a debt to the baker. And this was something that part of Vermeer's conscious strategy was feeding the family with bread on a debt, knowing that the baker would eventually want some paintings, that there weren't any paintings since the patron wanted his paintings. Mm-hmm. And that Maria, the answer would have been that she was helping with first as an apprentice, helping him with paints, but uh, ultimately wanted to start painting herself. And when they recognized that she had talent, she was really forging works. She was producing works that they knew would be able to be traded to the baker against this debt. And that's what happened. The baker got two paintings painted by her. The wife said were by her late husband. Uh, we know that from the description of the paintings because it's called A Woman with Her Maid, and there's one of a woman playing a lute. And what's interesting is that Vermeer scholars try to fudge the evidence there and say, well, that must have been Girl with a Guitar, even though his patron had a painting called Girl with a Guitar. They call a lute a guitar and a guitar a lute. The reason why they do that is because they're trying to account for how it is that uh, the baker would have gotten a, a middle period work uh, it's not a middle period work. It's the apprentice at the end of her career imitating the younger Vermeer. Mm-hmm. I see. That's very, that's very interesting. Let me ask you about, about the reception of your book. Let me put it this way. If a book like this were written in my field or one of my fields uh, with basically a uh, bombshell on every third page, uh, there'd be a lot of talk about it. So you say that some of the um, paintings attributed to Vermeer or not attributed to Vermeer are in fact Vermeers. And you attribute a lot of paintings that are not attributed to Fabritius to Fabritius, like uh, really a lot. I don't know. How many did you say? Two dozen or something? Five, six of his herbs. I yeah, do 50-something yeah. paintings. Yeah, and then you say that some of the paintings attributed to Vermeer were painted by Maria, his daughter. How, what sort of feedback have you – feedback? <laughs> that doesn't seem the right word. What sort of, uh, what sort of uh, responses have you gotten to these many uh, – and um, say, I would almost call them aggressive claims? Well, we're still, we're still waiting. I, I would say on a personal level, whenever I give talks, um, mostly I have to say – um, or have interviews with people like yourself, intelligent uh, interlocutors, I find that people are always uh, com- find the evidence and the arguments compelling. I also have the experience that there's been some violent negative reaction by scholars in my field uh, because there's an enormous amount of stake. Unfortunately, part of what's implied in my arguments is that what previous scholars have been saying is wrong. And as I told you, most of the scholars in my field have by this point really even published a Vermeer monograph or certainly weighed in. And to acknowledge this as being correct, you would have to acknowledge your own thinking on this was incorrect. So I think uh, what we're talking here is paradigm shift. And there's a kind of a joke about they say that in science, you know, the paradigm shift happens when the scientists who are um, adhering to the older theory actually die off. That's when the new paradigm can emerge. 
and there's a kind of funny one of the examples of a paradigm shift is when they were talking about dinosaurs and there was this new theory that the dinosaurs didn't slowly die off, but that actually a meteor hit the earth and killed them all. That paradigm did not catch on right immediately. So I like to say that, you know, if a meteor hit the earth and all Vermeer scholars were wiped out, maybe my paradigm would be able to emerge. But in the meantime, in the field, it's going to be very hard. Uh, there's been a couple, um, you can't even really call them reviews. It was two shorter notices where the scholars kind of dismissed my uh, uh, uh book as as uh, being fantasy or something they didn't really engage it they didn't address any of the problems uh and i thought gee if i was reading this review i would want to go to the guy's book because he kind of made it sound like i was one fellow put me up against the kind of let's say the the older scholars who's, who's representing the conventional paradigm and it made it clear that i was the younger generation he was saying don't have anything to do with this guy i would think well, let's see what the younger guy say. Yeah. He's kind of opening up some new things, but you know, it's not going to be—it's uh, not going to happen at night. I'm—I've uh, got a pessimism of the intellect and optimism, the will on this that I'm—I'm I'm in for a long haul. I put some stuff out there, and I've got some other stuff, a lot of stuff. So, I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, uh, I'm happy for people to eventually come to terms. But as you say, if you care about Fabricius. Uh, if you're at all interested in that painter, you should want to look at what I say. Mm -hmm. Or if you really care about Vermeer, the, the idea of the chronology. Uh, but uh, it's going to take it's going to take take some time, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm happy for them to attack me. Right now, I'm still waiting for people to attack me. To be perfectly straight. I always like it when people attack me. I, I sort of really enjoy it. I, I just like it when people pay attention to me. That's, I guess I'm sort of simplistic sure. that way. The, uh, but is there, let me ask you this, is there a lot of money at stake? Sure. I actually uh, argue that probably one of the paintings was sold by Steve Wynn, uh, who's a you know, Las Vegas entrepreneur, Bellagio owner. He bought one of these paintings that I, that I he sold it after um, I had done some article and some significant public talks. I, I, I just, you know, there may be other reasons why, but it was the pride of his collection, and I, I like to think that uh, that has an impact on him. I like to think that eventually Maria Vermeer's paintings may be worth more money. These were mostly paintings in the public domain in major museums that are never going to sell them, so there's no uh, uh, direct financial consequences. Uh, indirectly, the, the status of works of museums, but I actually think the nitty-gritty, what's at stake is the individual scholars, their own reputation, their sense of being right, uh, which I don't think is probably very different from history and other fields, how these battles get fought out. You're not, I think of it as a noble cause that uh, uh, the, the noble truth that uh, I, I love what I do, uh, I believe in what I do, and that's my first uh, motivation. And uh, what's going to happen? I mean, but I don't. I, I understand that you don't get something like that and have an easy road to recognition, uh, recompense. Uh, it's combined with the, the specific vagaries of my career is that I'm actually not. Uh, uh, I'm not, uh, I don't have a tenured position from which to uh, assail the academy, and that, that, uh, that's 
again, overdetermined. That may have everything to do with who I am and why I've come to make these kind of arguments. I'm, I'm doing other things. I'm kind of an adjunct curator and trying to do some interesting independent work. And that's the, the position from which I'm working. That, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, I I hope that may it all turn out for the best, as Escalus says. Yeah. But uh, I won't. I'm not going to change what I have to say uh, because of how it's going to yeah. be received. Yeah, certainly not. Let me. Uh, is is it the case that uh, I think a lot of people want to know this? When when um when one of these paintings that. Uh, you have claimed or somebody has claimed may not be a Vermeer comes up for sale. How, how do they authenticate it? Do they call you and say, uh, Ben, could you please fly to Paris and uh, tell us what you actually have to say about this before we, um, uh, before we ink the check? Um, the, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is it's, it's, there's a range of things, obviously, different cases, but sometimes it's creepier than that. In the case of the painting we were talking about that was bought by Wynne, it was sold at Sotheby's, and Sotheby's had a kind of team that they constructed, I call it the Sotheby's team, a bunch of researchers who came to the conclusion no one in the circle of Vermeer scholars, uh, Dutch scholars of Dutch painting, who's familiar with this case, has any objection to the idea that it's Vermeer. They said it's absolutely Vermeer. And the funny thing was that I said, I, for one, object in my book. But there was also a journalist who said it's a forgery. But the, but the, the scholars who were part of this team were paid for this. They came to the conclusion that it's not only a Vermeer, but it's uncontrovertibly a Vermeer. So unfortunately, yes. This goes back to the questions you asked at the beginning of the interview about, um, uh, and this maybe will gain you some sympathy, which is that I think you're an unrepentant young Turk about genius. You don't like genius. You're reaching for your intellectual gun. <laughs> and that you're right to say that there's exploitation and dubious motives involved. But if I say to you, well, wait a minute, there's different people. But some people are claiming genius and say claiming Vermeer is a genius and that the painting is by Vermeer, but it's really about their reputation and yeah. money and right. keeping a lid on things. Right. I'm very invested in genius, but it's completely the opposite. Yeah, no. So there's genius and there's genius. There's different kinds of motives. Mm -hmm. uh, the very idea of arguing about genius and who is a genius and which paintings are works of genius involves life death struggle mm -hmm. so we can hardly simply table genius as belonging to one uh, dubious side it's uh, like most significant intellectual issues it's it's, it's got two sides at least and mm -hmm. uh, are there are there let me ask this are there any uh, vermeers to be yet discovered are we got sure there are no is there, is there one a, in my is there one in my uh, attic or anything or what are, really there there are some that could be discovered Yes, and what I'm saying about the Fabriciuses, for example, I actually do, you know, give a painting to Vermeer that's in the depot of the, the basement or the, you know, the storage area of the Rake's Museum. Uh, though, I give many paintings like that to, to Fabricius. And what I, one of the things that's interesting is genius goes both ways. So you can have a work that's not what it's supposed to be, and it's all about promoters and people telling things, that are mis their own mistakes or projections or lies, and people buy into it because we 
Learn to love the things that we love, as Nietzsche tells us. None of us are, are blank slates. We all don't. There is genius. The Beatles are, you know, I remember at a dinner party, somebody telling me, the Beatles, it's all promotion. Well, there was a hell of a lot of promotion in which the Beatles were themselves involved. But if you can't hear the, the pleasure of a northern song or some of these, these other songs, I, I feel sorry for you. That's what I said to the person. She's never forgiven me at a dinner party. I said, you know, some of the things we want to hold on to, like the possibility of the Beatles, Needles of the possibility of Vermeer, but um, I've, I've already forgotten the question. I think it was. Uh, well, it was whether there were going to be any more Vermeers discovered. The, 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 on the other hand, there are paintings that are genius that aren't recognized again, Marshall, because you need mediation of discourse or scholarship or mm -hmm. popular. In other words, if there's a painting in the basement, you're not going to be able to recognize it's a genius until somebody says, well, you know, this is a Fabricius. This is actually a masterpiece of Western art. Take it up into the main gallery and start arguing about it. That allows, opens up the possibility that other people are going to say, you know, he's right. Because yeah. there may have been someone like Torre who was just a fool who was saying so-and-so is a great painter, and nobody paid attention to him. We've all paid attention to Torre because he was right. He put his finger on something. He discovered, he did start talking about somebody that nobody had previously recognized as important. And since then, the world has weighed in. Maybe not always correctly, maybe partly for dubious motives, but par partly because Vermeer is a genuinely extraordinary painter, the view of Delft, the, these paintings are amazing and they can change our lives. And Proust thought so and he was right. Uh, so it's mixed up. And, uh, but there is genius out there. There's works that are not recognized. And, uh, um, you know, there's artists to be recognized. There's hopefully another Beatles coming and they will need, a, uh, you know, a... Uh, a manager and support and and uh, promotion in order to get out there. You know, some people would argue that uh, Taylor Swift, <laughs> unfortunately in our time, more promotion. But we don't want to cave in and say, well, it's all promotion. There must be some great artists. I know some. I know some musicians that are still waiting to be yeah. discovered. No, I, I, I know just what you mean. I mean, I do have – I used to follow music very closely and play in bands myself. And I, I do have people that I, I, I would say – uh, I don't know about genius, but they were really good and they will last. Uh, I, I won't mention them on the air, but I, I do also have that feeling. I think I can recognize that je ne sais quoi. I don't know. But I also wanted to say that, uh, you know what, Ben? Your um, students are really lucky. <laughs> Let me say that <laughs> because you bring a lot of passion to this subject, and that I, you know, I think that is the essential element in good teaching. So uh, um, I don't know if there are universities or colleges out there to which you may uh, want to apply for a job, but for goodness' sake, do yourself a favor and uh, give Ben. Um, a permanent position someplace. Uh, we, we've taken up a huge amount of your uh, time today. I could talk about this for another hour, um, as I like you uh, bring a certain passion to almost, I guess, almost everything. Uh, but let me let me ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what, what are you working on now? It sounds like you're working on several things, but to give give us uh, the biggest of them. I'm, I, well, I've got a couple exhibitions which I can't talk about, but my, <laughs> I, I'm actually trying to top my um, – because I, I, my first book was this Vermeer book, and I thought of it as my magnum opus, but I'm actually now working on what I think my magnum opus, <laughs> which is on uh, Rembrandt and doing so, uh, the same kind of things. But Rembrandt had a bunch more students, um, a lot of work said to be by Rembrandt today. 
are actually by his students. And it's a similar situation, which is that uh, there an enormous amount of work needs to be done in the chronology of Rembrandt's actual works, in the chronology of an attribution of these paintings to his students, forming the students' oeuvres, showing their interaction. And what you get when you do that is the possibility of finally really understanding Rembrandt um, I think a lot of these students are very important. It's fascinating to see them. It's very important to settle uh, the confusion and the muddle that we're in now to be able to really understand. But most importantly, when you get Rembrandt's autograph oeuvre, I think there's an, a great deal left to be said about uh, Rembrandt, his achievements, what what he really did as an artist, and uh, that's that's the book that I'm working on now. Well, we look forward to talking uh, to you about it when it's done, and I look forward to sort of uh, following everything that you do. Um, and uh, I, want, I want to tell the readers that, you know, obviously this is a terrific book, and I very much encourage you to go out and buy it. Uh, it is one of the things about this book that really surprised me, I have to say, is I, I, get, I get a lot of these books, and I confess that I get them for free because the publishers send them to me, which is very nice. So I never really know how much they cost. And I looked at this book, which is fabulously produced and, and very nicely illustrated, uh, and I thought, this book costs $100. And I was very happy to learn today uh, on Amazon that you can get it for 38 bucks, <laughs> Hardback. So that really is a, I don't know what your cut is, Ben, but that's a thats a heck of a good price for this book. So I would encourage people to go out and um, buy it. And I'd also like to uh, just say thanks, Ben, for being on the show. Anyway, the book is Vermeer's Family Secrets, uh, Genius Discovery, and The Unknown Apprentice. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Marshall. All right. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Ben Binstock about his new book, Vermeer's Family Secrets. Genius, Discovery, and The Unknown Apprentice. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.